And so because of all of those unfinished negotiations with originals, I'm thinking a lot of the work that the digital replicants can do or the digitized versions can do as being kind of like ambassadorial work, right? Which should, of course, involve the communities, the, the, the kind of steward communities, the original communities. Like, How would we like these reproductions to be shared with humanity online? What kind of stories would we like these reproductions to tell? Are there layers of information that we would like to attach to the digitals that will help to tell another kind of story that the museums have failed to do? Welcome back, everyone, to the second part of our second episode on digital collections and the history of collecting and how these objects have kind of ended up in um, the museums of Western institutions. And in the first part of it, we really unpacked a lot of that history, tried to understand the kinds of logics and knowledge systems that resulted in large collections of, of objects in Western museums, but also what some of the issues of that have been, what some of the the kind of absences that have resulted, uh, the losses of knowledge on the African continent that have resulted, the kinds of violences that still exist in um, these collections, and particularly how we start to think about digitizing them. And so in this second part, we kind of shift into the next phase, which is to think about what it means to then look at these collections in a different kind of way and I suppose in a sense reconstitute our relationship to this history of collecting and to objects from the perspective of Africans thinking about repair and care and knowledge creation, thinking about ways of addressing what's been lost but also really reimagining what what becomes possible in the future. And so we are speaking to amazing practitioners who are really getting to grips with some of these questions and doing super great work. Absolutely. Thank you, Molemo, for that wonderful intro. You know, when we speak of digital collections, we're not just talking about the data in itself. Um, Really, I think we're referring to the ways in which this data is collected, the ways in which it's documented, curated, and the whole process of even getting this data online or in a form that people can use. And it's it's really interesting to see the ways in which different practitioners uh, adapt to both um, the data itself, but the process of collecting the data and, and the ways in which we're kind of using digital tools, as you say, as a reparative form of knowledge creation, knowledge seeking, and knowledge sharing. In our first episode, we did speak about magic and, you know, this kind of magic that technology brings with it and the ability to to create. Um, and our next speaker creates, uh, not just from a point of, of um, having collections there, but she asks questions around what would it mean to capture a point in time in which objects are lost, in which people are lost, in which culture is lost and transferred into different places. And how how do you visualize that? You know, so she really looks at um, 
absence of collections, but also uh, visualizing the disruption and in, in the ways in which culture would have, could have, um, might have shifted um, if this disruption would not have taken place. Here we have Mine, um, who's going to introduce her work. My name is Mine. I am a doctoral student at Columbia University, and I'm very interested in artificial intelligence, especially as it relates to Black lives and how that um, intersects with education in formal and informal spaces like museums or K-12 classrooms. But through my project, Igu AI, which is an ongoing project I started at the end of 2020, really looks at Benin bronzes and what would happen after they were stolen from Nigeria. So a little bit of context about Benin bronzes. It's a collection of 3,000 cultural objects which was stolen in 1897 from Benin Kingdom in Nigeria. And Benin Kingdom is located in the rainforest area of Nigeria. So I was very interested in looking at what happened after what happened after the looting, right? Especially in relation to artistic production because I'm an artist and I'm an artist from Benin Kingdom. So I was very interested in looking at that. And one reason I was interested in looking at it is because in 1897, during the punitive expedition, the king, who was considered the sole commissioner of the arts, was deposed and exiled from Benin Kingdom. And usually, whenever an artist in the kingdom was going to make an artwork, they were very dependent on the king to commission them and to say, go ye and make artworks. But then I was interested in understanding, okay, so what happens when the king is no longer there? How would an artist operate in the absence of a king? So I started thinking of how artificial intelligence might support my thinking in relation to reimagining artistic works um, during the 17-year absence, so creating possibilities. And it's more like an exercise in imagination, right? And it's very speculative. I think part part of it for me is that I want to tell new stories about Benin Kingdom because a lot of the official narratives that we have right now is really coming from museums who have for over 100 years you know, held these objects and exhibited them for so long and they've created these narratives around the monarchy and Benin and how it was looted, right? So how do we shift from these narratives that were created by people who really stole our works and continue to hold it? So I was interested in decomposing these narratives and creating new stories, looking for untold stories and things that have not been talked about in the past, or even addressed by museum exhibitions. I think when I started my project a year ago, it was much more challenging to like access um, images of Benin bronzes from museums, right? Because they have these copyright laws preventing you from reusing the image if you don't get permission from the museum. But today, like given that a lot of museums are starting to think about how to repatriate these bronzes, we'll see now there's an open access archive created by this consortium of German museums where you have over a thousand images and I think you can reuse them, right? But at the time when I started, I was really like hard downloading these objects from museum sites, really not getting permission from them. And in a sense, it was kind of like a liberatory practice, but also resisting the idea that, you know, a museum who stole an object should also own that digital asset. But one interesting thing for me also at the time was going back to like early 
publications, like vintage publications and auction catalogs that had like a listing of Benin bronzes, because a lot of these objects were documented when they were stolen, right? That was the way of like commodifying and monetizing them and selling them to museums. So there are a lot of like old catalogs that I bought from like eBay and Etsy that has like a listing of those images, which I also use and cross-reference um, in my data set, yeah. I remember when I first came across Mina's work, I was so excited. And I think Molemo can attest to, to how excited I was um, yeah, to come across absolutely. the project. <laughs> to come across the project, but also to engage with the ways in which um, she's approaching um, kind of visualizing absence. But at the same time, all these things that we are talking about, about um, digital being a kind of freedom, a way to create possibilities. You know, she she actually mentions um, that this is an exercise in imagination and the ways in which that is being done in theory and in practice was very, very interesting. Uh, for me, this idea that digital prevents a kind of freedom to exist outside the rigidity of actual museums and, and collections in which we are very used to having certain ways of behaving in museums in, and around objects. So it's don't touch this, don't do that. And all of a sudden now we have the opportunity to actually to play with data, you know, to take it apart, to put it back together. And, and this offers very much um, a resistance to the narratives that have been embedded. And also I think it's, it's a direct challenge to, to the fact that um, the people who own the objects, can only control the narrative, you know. And so what happens when we completely shift that lens upside down and, and, and do not equate um, owning or possessing the physical object to actually possessing or controlling the narrative? And so that freedom for me is a very, very interesting place to be um, at this point in time and understanding the kind of um, dynamics and, and potentials that um, artificial intelligence offers and the different ways in which we are structuring that conversation as African practitioners. For sure. And I think that I mean, it also really points to this dynamic of how long um, those who took the objects and their descendants mm -hmm. have had control over the narrative through publication, through academic writing, through exhibitions, a very particular story has been told. And I think that this mm -hmm. idea of really exploring and, as you say, sort of a reimagination of what other narratives become possible is a really exciting space to operate from. Mm -hmm. And the kind of quite experimental strategies of reimagining what pasts could have been and therefore what like a contemporary moment or a future might be really offers us so much in the space of what object histories can do for us, even outside of their objective thingness. Mm -hmm. um, and that so much of what's really vital to the restitution project is narrative um, mm -hmm. and, and how we tell ourselves a different kind of story. And I think mm -hmm. what uh, Mina is showing is the ways in which the kind of process of restitution and the Benin bronzes, of course, are probably the most emblematic of restitution in most people's minds now, uh, that, that that process of restitution and in particular the process of the Benin Dialogue Group because of their restitution undertakings, working on making digital images of these objects free to access, it's restitution that made that possible mm. and therefore made 
Mine's work easier to do in terms of rethinking narrative, in terms of reimagining. Mm. Um, and so we see the, the real implications between the restitution of physical objects and the possibilities that start to happen in the digital realm mm -hmm. um, and the kinds of creation that become possible in the space of knowledge making, which is just so vital. And we will, of course, I think in the very next episode after this one, discuss much more around these questions of intellectual property, uh, what it means to um, for Africans in particular to continue to create from, from this, this historical material and, and how sort of Western museums have operated within that kind of framework. But many of the people who are engaging with questions of digital restitution are very much interested in the kinds of knowledge creation, the ways in which contemporary generations of artists might relate to these art histories and new work might emerge out of that. So those questions become really vital. But I think that the, the primary point around what the digital can do for completely reimagining mm -hmm. our histories and our contemporary realities based on these physical collections is really exciting. And it's certainly some of the questions that um, Samba and Mulenga, who, who we've already met um, from the Women's History Museum in Zambia, um, they've also been asking quite similar questions and doing exciting things uh, with this questions of digital restitution. You know, the digital space is turning banks upside down. Mm -hmm. It's turning you know, economy is upside down, like why not museums, you know? Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> so basically that's that's like that's the direction we, we're going. Like museums don't have to look like this or function like this and the objects inside don't have to be like this or kept like this. There is so much more. There is so much more that you can do with these things. And and I think for for us, thank you very much, Europe, you've kept these objects for so long. But once they get back to Africa, we are going to have different ways of, of 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 having our people access them, use them, monetize them, mainstream them, and you know do what whatever we want with them. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, the digital age is made for Africa, and you know we're we're exploring even embedding NFTs into some of the objects that are and some of the digital artwork. So we we want to see what the possibilities are, the digital possibilities as well. Uh, in terms of what a museum can actually do with its objects, with ideas outside those objects because of those objects. Samba states the digital age was made for Africa. Um, and I think what so many of these practitioners are doing is pointing to a way of operating that recognizes many of the limitations of the digital in the African continent, issues of access to data, to devices, etc., but also kind of moving forward at the same time, operating at a place that recognizes the possibilities that the digital offers the African continent to address some of its core historical concerns. We're discussing things like NFTs, blockchain technologies, AI, 3D scans, but also in the previous episode, we were talking about things as simple as WhatsApp groups and WhatsApp conversations as strategies for using the multifacetedness of the digital to plug the gaps that have been so wide historically and to kind of resolve some of the really burning questions around um, the kinds of stories we tell ourselves, the kinds of knowledge creation that needs to so urgently be done due to the lacks of, of our predecessors in the kind of heritage space um, and what becomes 
possible when we use all of the tools uh, that we have at our disposal, I suppose. I definitely think that uh, the digital was made for Africa should be on a t-shirt somewhere, somehow, <laughs> uh, because it... I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I'm very interested in the ways in which you you and, and the rest of our speakers as well have have really touched on this kind of um, balance between infrastructure and imagination. And oftentimes when, when we talk about um, Africans and digital disruption, and you know we're talking about NFTs and blockchain and AI, the first question will always be, but not everyone has access or you don't have enough internet. And I like that our speakers show that um, in as much as we have this question and we're dealing with this question of access, as you've said, Malem, when you're dealing with this question of infrastructure, it does not necessarily determine how far or how less or how, how much we can imagine, you know, that is up to us. Um, and this uh, balance between what we imagine and what we create as being possible and existing alongside the kind of infrastructure that we have um, and speaking to uh, not all audiences, but certain audiences and that having an impact as well. We've really touched on digital collections um, and the ways in which African practitioners are creating them, using them and processing them. When we started this uh, podcast, Malema and I were really fascinated by this question around digital restitution. What does it mean um, to return digital data or even to restitute um, digital data in today's age? Um, there's so many questions. Um, for us, this is, is an important question because it's not one that we have answers to. And so we asked our guests um, and we'll get more and more insight as we move along the series, um, what they understand by the term digital restitution, digital repatriation. And so we hear from Nima, Samba and Mulenga, Mine and Kola on this. And one thing that I really found very interesting in the NFT space is this real explosion of artists who are interested in showing African culture. And there was like a very nice collection that came out by an artist in Ethiopia called Afro Masks. And they had done research on different masks, but then they like made them Afrofuturistic and they sold out in like one hour. And for me, that was really exciting in, in that it's a very different way of making people interested in African culture. So is it enough to, you know, take these different artworks and make a digital form and then, you know, it lives, I don't know where, it, maybe it lives somewhere with the museum um, or is it more important that you make them super accessible to people in that they can actually interact with, um, you know, as you said, with, you know, what, where did the piece come from? Who was it given to? What is the story behind that piece? And what is the history behind that piece? I think that that would be very interesting to think about ways. So in the NFT space, there was a there was a, a joint collective of a bunch of artists and they put up their work in a virtual virtual gallery. And so I went to the gallery and I looked at each piece and it just felt so accessible and it felt really beautiful to see all these artworks. So for me, it would be more important that people can really understand what is the history and that it's accessible to people in an, in an interesting way. So for us, digital repatriation is, is like a first step of access um, for, for, for the Zambian people. Because we know that we can, we can easily do that without having to 
and we can do it museum to museum. We don't have to go and you know do whatever government issues have to be done. We can actually make it a project, which is what we have done with the Swedish Ethnographic Museum. So for us, the whole digital repatriation issue was about one: how do we get um, our our own people to have easiest and quickest access to these objects, even if it's merely visually for the first step. Um, secondly, we wanted to avoid all the legal stuff and all that that is actually kind of hampering the, the conversation around the physical uh, restitution. So I like to think it's, it's the return of digital assets that represent looted, stolen cultural objects back to their communities of origin, right? I also like to think of it as this precondition for restitution. So in reference to like communities whose works have been stolen, like how do you set the parameters around the restitution of a physical object and make sure that any associated digital material, images, 3D files are returned back to you in addition to the physical object? When we think of restitution, we're talking of reclaiming um, a space for yourself that has been taken from you. And when I think of the work I do, I find um, a lot of opportunities to to use the technologies that have been brought to us. Um, most times we didn't have many roles, you know, a lot of roles in, in creating it, um, and using them to benefit ourselves. Um, because more times than not, we're just consumers, and you know, these people, you know, they divide the technology, and these spaces just come and you know get our data, get our phone numbers, our photos and everything, and then commercialize them and stuff like that. So um, to me, restitution is um, you finding ways to use those tools, those same tools, um, for work that benefits us, the language, the culture, the literature, just ways of, of being. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Open Restitution Africa, a collaboration between African Digital Heritage and Andani Africa. The podcast is produced by Chao Tayana Maina and Mulemo Mwilwa, with Pumzile Nombo Sotwala and Letabolaka Gumede on research. Thank you to Josh Chiundiza for the music, Karugu Maina on design, and Annaline van Heimbeek on editing. The podcast was made possible by 99 Questions at the Stifton Humboldt Forum in Berliner Schloss. This podcast is also available in zine form in French and German at www.openrestitution.africa and www.humboldtforum.org. Thank you for joining us.